On December 26, 2004, an earthquake occurred just before 1 a.m. under the Indian Ocean with the epicenter off the west coast of Sumatra, Indonesia. The shock had a magnitude of 9.1 to 9.3 and was caused when the Indian plate was subducted by the Burma plate and triggered a series of devastating tsunamis along the coasts of most land masses bordering the Indian Ocean, killing 230,000 to 280,000 people in 14 countries, inundating coastal communities with waves up to 100 feet high, some of which traveled over a mile inland. It was one of the deadliest natural disasters in recorded history. Indonesia was the hardest hit country, followed by Sri Lanka, India, and Thailand. It was the third largest earthquake ever recorded on a seismograph and had the longest duration of faulting ever observed. It caused the entire planet to vibrate as much as one centimeter and triggered other earthquakes as far away as Alaska. Compare that to another worldwide disaster 65 years earlier that resulted in the death of somewhere between 50 and 85 million people. That time, though, it was no earthquake or seismic shift that was the cause, but the movement of an object only a few ounces in weight. The fiery rhetoric coming from the tongue of one Adolf Hitler set a nation ablaze and propelled the world into the global conflict that was World War II. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 3, where our focus this morning will be on the tongue. As you are aware, Matt has been leading us through the book of Nehemiah, but this morning he gets a break as we again turn to the next passage in the book of James, as we have been looking at different tests or proofs of genuine faith. In James, we have regularly been confronted with the penetrating dynamic of God's word. That which is able to divide soul and spirit, bone and marrow. I'm aware as we come to this topic this morning, there can automatically be this desire to kind of put our heads a little lower, want to shrink back from hearing what we know can be hard truths. But once again, let us give our attention to the divine author 
that is speaking to us this morning. James chapter three, verses one through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being contain the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray and ask God for his help this morning. Lord, this is a sobering passage that you have inspired and given to us this morning. I pray that it would accomplish all that you desire it to this morning. That where we need to be sobered or corrected, that in your kindness your spirit would move among us and do your good work where we need to be strengthened and encouraged. By your mercy, would you show yourself strong among us? Would you help us to hear your message, your words? Give us ears, O Lord, to hear. Incline our hearts to you, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. What we see in this passage is that our tongues both direct 
and display our hearts. Our tongues are the key to unlocking both devotion and destruction. On the positive side, we'll see that the tongue is the key to unlocking perfection, according to James. On the negative side, we'll recognize that unbridled, our tongues unleash hell. The conclusion I believe we'll come to is that we need the right pilot to direct our tongues and our souls. James begins with a brief warning against becoming teachers because teachers are judged with greater strictness. To whom much is given, much is required. This is true, I believe, at the final judgment when every one of us will give an account for our words and deeds. That is something that is not restricted solely to teachers. However, the teaching role by nature adds to the volume of words and influence our words might have. And there will be account given for each of our words. It's one thing to make an unguarded comment to a friend, but another to make it in front of a hundred people in the role of a teacher. Teachers will need to give an account on the final day. What have we done with the influence that has been entrusted to us? That's a sobering reality to live under. Have we pointed to the great shepherd or have we tried to replace him? Have we sought to serve his purposes or our own kingdom? But a stricter judgment is true in the temporal sense as well. Teaching is one of the first things the church is judged by. Those in this role are watched and observed more closely. Our mistakes and shortcomings are often more public. So James wants anyone considering the role of teacher to be sobered, to beware. If people took issue with the content of Jesus' teaching or the delivery of Paul's teaching, then those who are lesser teachers will certainly not be exempt from a stricter judgment as well. Then, James makes sure this is a sobriety checkpoint for all of us, declaring we all stumble in many ways including himself and every reader. He wants all of us to take great care in our thoughts and speech and communication because what he's revealing here is that our tongues are the key to unlocking perfection. He's just declared it. If a man doesn't stumble in what he says, he is a perfect Man, able to bridle his whole self. And James, in verse 2, James repeats an illustration he used way back in chapter 1, verse 26. 
where he proclaimed the need to bridle our tongues there as well. There he he said, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. But here there's a bit of a twist on what he's already said. The picture there was to bridle our tongues. The picture given now is not the tongue being bridled, but that the tongue is the bridle or the bit which directs the whole body. In the first four and a half verses of chapter three, James is highlighting the positive power of the tongue. It has the ability, he says, to direct the whole person. It's a master key. He claims that can unlock our perfection. Now, it's important for us to recognize the perfection that he speaks of here, sometimes translated as maturity, is not sinlessness, although he was familiar with that kind of perfection as well, growing up as the brother of Jesus. He saw one who had perfect control over his tongue. In his brother and savior. Here he's not speaking of sinlessness. But completeness as a disciple. Having what we need to honor God. And follow him rightly. It's what he speaks of in the opening verses of his letter. When he says. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. This has been his goal throughout this letter is to produce a people that are mature in their Christ-likeness, giving different tests to reveal where their hearts are, who they are following. Do the claims we make as his disciples get revealed in the choices we make and the actions we have as his followers? James compares the tongue to the bit in a horse's mouth and the rudder on a ship as other examples of small instruments that steer and control much larger objects. Here in chapter 3, he is using control of the tongue not just as the evidence of spiritual maturity, but also as the means to it. The tongue is like a bit or a rudder or a steering wheel in that it's what the pilot uses to direct the horse or the boat or the car. And Christ-like maturity is the destination James says our tongues should be steering toward. The question for us is how do we get our tongues to do that? How do we get our tongues to steer us toward maturity, towards completeness, towards Christ-likeness? Well, we speak truth to ourselves. We preach truth to our temptations and to our troubles. We meditate on the reality of who God has revealed himself to be. We remind ourselves of his amazing works. His gracious activity 
We proclaim his character and promises until they motivate us and fuel our action. He calls us to guard our speech so that it can guide our lives. As Jesus' brother James likely saw this in action numerous times. Here are a couple examples the gospel writers record of Jesus practicing this. What what was on Jesus' lips when temptation came to him from Satan after fasting 40 days in the wilderness? Well, he proclaimed the truths of God. He was quoting scripture. He was reminding Satan and his own soul in the moment of temptation that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That was what was driving his response to temptation. What did Jesus say? He came to do. Well, in John John 5, 19, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. He was seeking to get his direction, not just from his own whims and desires, but to be aware of who God was, what activity he was about, so that he could be active in doing what his father was doing. What was on his lips as he was passing through the valley of the shadow of death, when he was being forsaken for us and had no shepherd of his own to comfort him in his affliction. Scripture was on his lips. He quoted from multiple psalms even as he hung upon the cross giving his last breaths. He was quoting Old Testament. He was quoting the psalms. And friends, if the one who knew uninterrupted fellowship with the Father needed to meditate on God's word, needed to remind himself of its truth when he was tempted, if that's where he found his comfort in his times of need, how much more do we need these eternal truths to speak to our temptations and trials, to motivate our actions and comfort us in our distress we need to remind ourselves of who he is of his gracious activity the blessings of his salvation we need to remind ourselves of his promises and his faithfulness And when we are weak, many times God will provide others to help remind us of his truths and to strengthen the proclamation that is being made to our souls. And as we speak the truth of God's promises into our own lives and situations, he'll often use us to assist others in realizing those promises as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in Life Together, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. 
He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. Similarly, Richard Phillips writes, Do you ever wonder how to encourage a struggling friend? It is a great thing to come and take another by the hand. But it is something even greater to take that shaking hand and rest it secure on the promises of God. And when we're tempted, when our souls are troubled, what we need is is not an exclamation of our circumstances. What we need to see is the greatness of God, the surety of his promises, the reality that he has been faithful and will be again. For our family right now, there are two promises that are most frequent on our list of things we seek to remind ourselves and one another of. First is the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. Particularly for the younger members of our family, this gets applied in the arena of school right now. And we bring again and again this truth as a reminder that tests or projects or other uncertainties aren't exceptions to this promise. These two are included in the he will never forsake us part of the declaration. He will never leave us. We remind ourselves that Jesus was forsaken for us so that we will never be forsaken by him. It's not a promise that everything will be easy or that everything will work out exactly the way we would like it to, but it is an absolute guarantee that he will be with us whatever we are walking through. That these circumstances are not him abandoning us to our destruction. Something that we can lose sight of when the circumstances we're walking through loom larger in our eyes than God does. It's regular in our home to remind ourselves on Monday that by Friday... We're going to see God as faithful. He's going to show himself again this week. So we need to preach that reality today, Monday and Tuesday, even though we don't know yet how he'll reveal his faithfulness. The second promise we most regularly find ourselves turning to in our home is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And similarly, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As believers, we aren't meant to walk around focused on our sin and shortcomings. Instead, we are to be marveling at his mercy and grace. When thoughts of unworthiness and condemnation fill our minds, we can't just sit there and take it. We need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. We go on the offensive. We speak truth, proclaiming God's reality to one another and to our own souls. We do it by reminding ourselves of his promises. There's no condemnation. He is faithful and just. As we confess our sins, he will forgive us our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This speaking to one another and and declaring the truths of God to our own soul is something we see David doing again and again in the Psalms. Psalm 42.5 is a great example. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? You, within me, what's up? Why are you in turmoil? Why are you cast down? Why are you focused on things that are not serving your soul right now? And then declaring hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This exact verse is actually repeated identically in a couple other places. Chapter 42 and 43, we see David proclaiming the truth of God's salvation in order to steer and direct his own heart and soul. He's aware he is troubled. He knows this isn't right. And he says, I need to speak the truth of who God is and what he has done into my own soul. My own soul needs to listen to this so that I can orient myself rightly. He's recognizing his soul is not oriented toward God. And so he proclaims his own need to hope in him and to focus on him and his reason for his hope. Another example is Psalm 103, where again, he is exhorting himself Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Because that's what I'm tempted to do when life gets big. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Remember this soul, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Soul, you need to remember this now. Because your attention is given to other things. And you need to reorient and direct your gaze at the one in whom we have our hope. The one who saves and redeems. Oh soul, look here. He's recounting to his own soul reason after reason that he has to be amazed at and grateful for God. That's that's part of what we seek to do together. When we come, like this morning, when we share communion, we're proclaiming, we're remembering his death until he returns because we need again and again and again to be reminded to take even these physical things to touch and taste to speak the reality of his shed blood of his broken body that it is for us that's why we gather together and sing his praises Guys, that's not primarily for God's benefit. He already knows this stuff. Okay? Um, This isn't a work that we do that makes us worthy before him by singing these things about him. It's good. I think it pleases him. Absolutely, that our hearts are directed towards them, that we recognize the truth about him and proclaim it to those around us to our own souls, but it's in many ways for our benefit to remind ourselves of what is true, to declare the realities of who he is and what he has done, to remind ourselves this is our God. There is none like him. And there are many things that threaten to distract And take our gaze away from him. So as we gather we come and we sing to remind ourselves of his glories. And that this is where our attention should be fixed. Because this has the ability to transform our hearts. To direct our lives. To grow us to be more like him. As we reflect on remind ourselves of and proclaim these truths of who he is. It's the opposite of grumbling and complaining. It's choosing to focus on what is true about him instead of focusing on the circumstances around us that threaten to be bigger than him in our eyes. We must be active in steering our souls again and again 
to the character and promises of God. And as we do, we will direct our lives toward maturity and completeness in Christ. Our tongues have a great ability, a power to strengthen and to build. But they also have power for great destruction. And unbridled, our tongues unleash hell. Verse five again, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Likening our tongue to fire, setting ablaze great forests, speaks both to the destruction the tongue can cause, as well as to the wildness the uncontrollable nature of the damage that can be done once our words escape our lips. Every summer we hear of wildfires somewhere raging out of control, doing massive damage. Last year, California was particularly hard hit. With over 9,000 wildfires, burning almost 1.4 million acres just in the state of California just last year. Destroyed nearly 10,000 structures, killed over 40 people. In December alone, over 230,000 people were forced to evacuate. 95% of California's wildfires last year were human-caused. And they were unable to be contained until over $13 billion in damage was done. Those are staggering statistics. And again, that's just one state in one year. Just as staggering... How apt an illustration this is for the tongue. Does anyone want to accuse James of exaggeration on this point? Does our present national, social, political climate not verify the destructiveness that can flow from unbridled tongues. 
Do words between nations right now not threaten to set literal forests and more ablaze? It doesn't take too long to bring to mind institutions that have been discredited, careers that have been ruined, churches that have been split, families that have been fractured, caused by the world of unrighteousness unleashed by the tongue. Who of us hasn't felt the sting? Hasn't felt the stain? Hasn't experienced the burn of word grenades lobbed in our direction? Who here hasn't instantly regretted the savageness of our own untamed tongue? as it inflicts damage on someone we love. With words that cannot be taken back, words about another that spread like wildfire beyond where we intended them to go, hurtful words whose embers can continue to smolder for years, Who can't remember specific comments uttered to you even decades ago that still bring a negative emotional response when they're brought to mind? The idea that sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me. Can you remember a single lecture from school or college with the same clarity of the biting words of a parent or a former best friend? Does anyone not have words that you regret? Words that you wish you could take back? Words to someone or about someone that have altered relationships? whose damage has never been undone. Like a forest fire, once our words escape our lips or our thumbs or our keyboards, they are no longer contained. We don't have control over the damage they might cause. These digital communication, they can be a great gift, a real blessing. But can it also cause us not to want to relate to certain friends or family members ever again? The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, 
setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. These aren't throwaway phrases James is using. This has actually been a fairly consistent theme over the passages around this. A few verses earlier, he had us compare our faith to that of the demons. The next passage we're going to read in a month, he compares our wisdom to demonic wisdom. He, He really means this stuff. The influence that comes. And the reality is, it's it's not unlike what he has heard his brother declare. It's not unlike what James does, or what Jesus does when he reproves Peter, when Peter tries to rebuke Jesus for saying that he's going to die and then be raised again. Peter comes to Jesus and he takes him aside and he says, nope, that'll never happen. In Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, let's be real clear. Peter wasn't cursing God when his words were attributed to Satan, but he was operating on human, worldly logic instead of affirming Jesus' divine prerogatives. He thought he was being helpful to the Lord, but Jesus calls him a hindrance. And he says, in effect, you aren't speaking according to what I am revealing to you. You aren't speaking the reality of what has been revealed must take place. You're speaking according to what seems best in your own eyes. And then he declares, that's satanic. That's the same spell that Eve fell under. It's the same trap we fall into anytime we ignore clear biblical directive to follow what feels right or when we think that our case is the exception or again, like Eve, we believe that God is only looking out for his own best interests in his commands, not ours. Those are lies born in hell. James uses strong language because the stakes are so high. Matthew 5, 22, Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
In this passage, James isn't pulling any punches. He wants these words to land and have their intended effect. He's pointing out that every kind of beast, bird, reptile, sea creature, they can be tamed. But not our tongues. No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. He wants us all to see that for every one of us, this is a persistent battle. No human being can tame the tongue because no human being can cleanse and purify the heart. Only the Spirit of God applying the work of the Son of God can do that. We need Him as our divine pilot to direct our speech. We need the only utterly perfect one who was sinless in his speech to help us with ours. We cannot do it on our own. Because on our own, verse nine, with it we bless our Father and Lord. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Friends, we need to see. He's not talking about rank pagans or atheists that have nothing to do with God. My brothers, my brothers, again and again, he's, he's highlighting those that are praising and blessing God. He's warning the same people that would be reading his letter, not a corrupt or godless society that's out there somewhere. He's warning the church He's letting us know that we're included in the no human being that can tame the tongue on our own. Do we give honor to God and his character and his works and then tear down or grumble about those made in his image? whether it be family members or neighbors, co-workers or church members, particular ethnic group or political party. That's setting our minds on the things of man and not on the things of God. Whether that speech would be directed at them or about them, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. It is a hindrance to the work of God. It is a hindrance to those around us, and it is a hindrance to our own souls. 
James's plea is that we use our tongues to direct our hearts. To direct our lives towards maturity and godlessness, God, godliness. To proclaim his character, his promises, and his salvation. To remind ourselves again and again of who he is and what he has done. To remain vigilant lest these instruments that have been purchased for his glory stain the whole course of our lives and burn or poison the lives of those around us. His final appeals to consider olive trees and fig trees, fresh and saltwater springs, is a call to recognize that this isn't an area of life where we're supposed to seek balance. Because the one contaminates the other. If you're at your Memorial Day picnic tomorrow and a bird poops in your drink, how much are you going to drink? Just a sip? Whole swallow? You're going to chug it till there's just a sediment at the end? None of it is fit to drink, even if it was a small bird. (laughs) Friends, how much deadly poison is it okay to mix with our praises? We can be mostly praising God but it doesn't take many angry words to a family member or a coworker to undo a testimony. It only takes a few words to or about a brother or sister to contaminate all those praises. The poison begins to do its damage. The fire has been lit. It's beyond our ability to control it. James is jealous for the testimony of the church. He's jealous for the maturity, the growth in Christ's likeness, those that call themselves disciples. He wants us to take account What are we using our tongues for? Is it to help us to grow in maturity? Is it to benefit and bless and help those around us to be encouraged and strengthened and grow in their maturity? Or is it a fire? Is it a poison? He wants us all to pursue being more like Jesus through the right use of our tongues by blessing God and building up one another, by preaching his great salvation to one another and our own souls.
Friends, where we have fallen short, and I'm just assuming so that you know, based on James' declaration that none of us, no human being can tame the tongue, that when we talk about falling short, that means all of us. Where we have fallen short. Short of perfection. Short of maturity in Christ-likeness. In reflecting our King. Well, let us use our tongues to cry out for mercy. Let us use our tongues to proclaim his faithfulness to our own souls. Let us use our tongues to proclaim his faithfulness one to another. Let us use our tongues to ask him for help in our weakness. Knowing that he delights to show himself strong. As we humble ourselves, he loves to give grace to the humble. Use our tongues, confess our sins, ask for his forgiveness, ask for his help to honor him as the captain of our tongues and as of our souls. Let's pray together. The band can go ahead and come.